Thank you, Martin. Can you hear me? Am I switched on? Yeah, I think I am. That's good. Let me uh, pray for us as we come to look at that very short uh, passage of Scripture. Uh, Apostle Paul writes elsewhere that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, Lord God, that is our prayer this evening. We pray that by your Spirit you would come, uh, you would speak to us from your Word, uh, you would teach us, uh, you would rebuke us, correct us, and you would train us all in righteousness to equip us for all that you have to do. I pray that you'd help me as I speak and us as we listen. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, I was very glad that uh, Ben asked that question earlier about what you've been doing earlier in the day. Uh, I've had a very good week, actually. I haven't just been to the Bishop's Garden. I've been away on a conference uh, I love going on conferences with uh, other vicars. Uh, it's great to go away and be with like-minded individuals. There's something really good about just coming together uh, from many different corners of the country, uh, singing God's praises, sitting under his word, encouraging uh, one another. And yet, uh, I'm not so stupid to know that, to, to forget that actually uh, deep down there will be things that we disagree on um, as well. Um, so, for example, uh, some of us at the conference would have believed that it's okay to baptise babies. Others would have thought, uh, no, you have to wait until people are older. Uh, there were some people there who uh, would have uh, preferred in their services to use set prayers, a bit like we do at Holy Trinity. Others will say, no, we don't use set prayers at all, we just use open prayers. Uh, some people would choose one Bible translation, other people would choose another. And that's true, isn't it, for any gathering of Christians, whether that's a conference, whether it's a church congregation as we are here, whether it's a Christian union at a university, any gathering of Christians, yes, there'll be lots that unites us, but there will be things uh, that we differ on. And the question is, what do we do when we differ? What do we do? How do we treat one another? Uh, Well, that's the question that's uh, facing us in the passage that uh, Martin just read for us. It would be very good if you could have that open. It's page 1140 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll know something of the background to this chapter. Uh, The uh, the church in Rome were were facing a a bit of a crisis in some ways. They they were dividing uh, over an an issue. Uh, There was a group within the congregation... Um, And we think, from what we can tell, they they were mostly Christians who were from a Jewish background. Not entirely, but mostly Christians who were from a Jewish background. uh, Who were a bit uncertain as to what freedom the good news of Jesus Christ had actually achieved for them. Uh, They were still thinking that they were called to observe that the old food laws and the old special holy days that they had, uh, they had uh, followed when they were Jews. Now, we should be really careful to understand this, because it is quite difficult. Uh, they were clearly believers. We, we shouldn't think that they were somehow kind of, you know, non-Christians who were just amongst uh, the, the flock. They weren't. They were clearly believers. Uh, Paul doesn't talk to them in the way that he does, say, the, the Galatian Christians. They are not believing in other gospel. They, they know the Lord Jesus Christ. They're trusting in him for salvation. Uh, Paul uh, never uh, has any doubt about that. But they were, they were weak in the sense that they were unsure, or, or, or a bit, perhaps a bit nervous, a bit, a, bit, a bit unclear, about what difference the gospel should make uh, in their lives. 
Uh, They were disagreeing about secondary issues or disputable matters, as as, uh, Paul describes it here. Uh, Paul's answer, as we saw last week, is very clear, and you can read it in verse 1. He's very straightforward. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Uh, We are to welcome those who are fellow believers in Christ who are struggling uh, with secondary issues. Uh, We're not to allow those minor differences that will inevitably happen in any uh, gathering of Christians uh, to divide us, to tear us apart. Uh, We're going to look at uh, those verses that we had read in a little bit more detail, but before I do, I should probably also add another uh, kind of warning, I suppose. And it's particularly appropriate in recent times. So uh, in recent years, some Christians have have tried to use these verses as a kind of uh, justification for for kind of basically accepting any view that anyone cares to offer in church. So some people have tried to say that, you know, this this means that we should effectively, whatever view you think is right, uh, you should accept it and you have no right to criticise people. Uh, Paul isn't saying that at all. Uh, There are certain things that scriptures are very, very clear on, and we can't just say, well, if you don't like that, then that's okay for you, and we're to accept you, whatever you believe. Uh, Paul has just written Romans. We've been going through Romans, and we know full well that he's been very clear that there's only one way back to God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not a disputable matter. (laughs) Either way, there's only one way to God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also true in matters of behaviour as well. Uh, So it's not fair to say that, for example, uh, same-sex practice falls into the category of a disputable matter. Some people have uh, tried to claim that, and therefore it's it's fine for... Christians can disagree on on that, and that's all okay. Uh, It's not. Uh, The Bible is very clear that that's not God's plan for men and for women. Uh, It's not an issue that we can dispute over. The Bible is clear... And we have to, uh, to uh, take what it says and follow it. So we have to be a little bit careful as we approach these verses. It's not a kind of uh, catch-all to say, well, if we just disagree on someone, with someone, then that's okay, and they can just do what they like, and we can do what we like. Paul isn't saying that. Uh, it's about how we live together in unity within the boundaries that God has set for us uh, in his word. Let's keep that in mind, and let's uh, dive in, shall we, and see what Paul has to say here. And I think he gives us three further reasons, further to last week, as to why we are to accept our weaker brothers and sisters. And the first one is he says that we're to accept our weaker brothers and sisters because we have a living Lord. We have a living Lord, uh, verse 9. He says, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. I think one of the most dominant ideas that we find in our contemporary society is the kind of idea that, that we're all free to do as we want. Uh, we see it almost daily, don't we? It's the driving force be- behind so many decisions that we make, whether that might be the, the boyfriend or the girlfriend, who say, well, uh, we love each other very much, it's, it's up to us, we're free to do what we like, uh, we're going to sleep together even though we're not married. Uh, we see it on a kind of a bigger scale, perhaps a more drastic scale, we might say, when we have somebody who says, uh, I think that I was, I, I'm, I'm a different gender to the gender that I was born. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to go and decide I'm going to live in that gender, and no one else can stop me. I'm going to do it. I'm free. I can do exactly what I want to do. And what matters in our world, above all, is personal freedom. 
But Paul reminds us actually that in these verses, if we're Christians, we're not free to do exactly as we want to. Because we don't, we're not our own. We don't belong to us ourselves. He says, doesn't he, uh, in uh, verse 8, so we didn't read this, he says, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Uh, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we looked at the very start of this section in Romans, and it's uh, um, uh, at the start of uh, chapter 12. Uh, and Paul says those wonderful words, in view of God's great mercy, you are to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's saying that because of the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, We don't belong to ourselves anymore. Uh, We are to live everything for his glory and for his praise. We might say, well, why? I mean, how can Paul be so certain about this? Well, verse 9, I think, is the answer, isn't it? Uh, He says, well, Christ died and returned to life, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Uh, Jesus has demonstrated once and for all his ownership over you and me. He died on the cross as our saviour. And he triumphed again. He rose three days later. He is the Lord. Uh, Paul told told us right at the beginning of Romans that he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's exactly the same here, isn't it? He is the Lord. There's nobody else who has died as our Saviour and risen again. If he has, he has ownership over us like nobody else. So it means that if, whether we're dead or alive, Jesus remains our Lord. And if Jesus really is our Lord, then that means, don't we, that we have an obligation to live in a way that always obeys him and honours him. We're not free to live lives as we want to. Uh, We're free to live under his rules. We belong to him. Well, there are lots of things that we could say could flow from that. But I think let me just pick out two that I think um, strike me in particular. I think there are two things that, that, that follow from that truth if we understand that Jesus is our Lord and we belong to him. Uh, Firstly, it's very simple, isn't it? It should mean that the aim of everything that we do in this life must be to please him. I don't know about you, but but so often that's not the aim of my life. So often I do things either to please myself or to please other people. Now, that's not always a bad thing, but that should not be the overriding principle in my life or yours, should it? If Jesus is our Lord, then everything we do should be about pleasing him. Um, because he wants us to do it. Uh, More than that, I suppose if he's our saviour, if he really has triumphed over sin and death, as Paul explains to us, why wouldn't we want to serve him? Uh, There's a wonderful quote from the uh, the Book of Common Prayer that the um, Church of England uh, uses as its its liturgy, or it used to, at least. And it has a wonderful phrase, and it says, uh, his service is perfect freedom. And it seems like a complete paradox, doesn't it? How can service be freedom? And yet the truth is, it is. If we belong to Jesus Christ, as Paul says that we do, then we're called to serve him. And wonderfully, that service actually is freedom, because it's the best way, it's the way that we're designed uh, to, to, uh, to be. But secondly, and this perhaps applies more to this passage, it should mean that if Jesus is our Lord, then we've got no right to go meddling in other people's business. Uh, probably most of us are, uh, are, are, are nosy parkers, or busybodies, I should say, as my mother-in-law would, uh, would call you. Uh, we all like to poke our, our noses into what other people are doing. And I think Paul challenges us on this, doesn't he? If Jesus is Lord, then that's his problem. It's not ours. We have to be clear on that. Our focus is to be on pleasing him. 
And we're to, to worry about whether we're pleasing him, not whether other people are doing that. It's up to us to please him. Uh, it doesn't matter. If, if they're seeking to, to honour Jesus, whether they, in the choice of whether they use guitars when they're worshipping, whether, whether they use an organ, that's okay, Paul says. So long as they're seeking to honour Jesus, even if we disagree with them, we're to let them. Jesus is the Lord, they're answerable to him, and we are answerable to him in our own way. Jesus is our living Lord. That's the first reason. Uh, the second reason is uh, Paul says that we're to accept our weaker brothers and sisters because of our family ties. Our family ties. And you can see that in verse 10. Paul says this. Uh, you then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? Uh, all of a sudden, I don't know if you noticed in that verse, Paul's language changes. All up until now, he's been talking about weak Christians and strong Christians and living Christians and dead Christians. And then all of a sudden, he says, brothers. We might also add brothers and sisters, and I think that probably the new NIV does uh, that, I think. Uh, he's deliberate. It's, it's not a sort of throwaway line. It's a deliberate choice, a deliberate description. Uh, he's reminding these bickering Roman believers of a very, very, very powerful truth. In the gospel, they're family, just as we are. And just as families love one another and care for one another in the deepest way possible, so Paul says, that should be marking your relationships as well. That's what Christians should be like. Yes, you might disagree, but that doesn't set that aside. You're brothers and sisters, and you're called to care for one another. We're to accept each other because... We are family. Uh, the Bible uses lots of pictures to describe the people of God at uh, the church. Uh, and I think, for me, one of, the, one of the most tender is this description of the church, you and me, as the family of God. It's a very, very old description. Right back in the Old Testament, back in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, God told the Israelites that out of, all of the, out of all the peoples on earth, he had chosen them, not because they did anything special, but he chose them out of his love and mercy to be his treasured possession, the Bible describes. Uh, later on, the, the prophet Hosea uh, describes the people of God as, as being like God's children. Uh, even though they had responded with complete disobedience, they'd gone turned their back on him, they had treated God appallingly, and yet still God described them as his children. And in Romans, Paul has been, uh, been building on that picture uh, if you've been with us, you'll know he's been descri- explaining how through the good news of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, uh, it's made it possible for, for you and for me to be adopted into God's family. Uh, we get given the Holy Spirit. It's a mark of our adoption as God's sons and daughters. Uh, we are part of God's family if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation this evening. And if that's true... If we are family, as we gather here this evening, that, that really should affect how we treat one another, uh, even when we disagree. We might fall out, we, we might squabble, and we will do, of course, because we're only human. But deep down, that relationship remains with brothers and sisters, and nothing can end that. Uh, this morning in our second service, uh, Andy Bunter was preaching from uh, John 17. Uh, if, you, if you know your Bible, you'll know that passage well. It's that wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed just before he went to the cross, uh, coming towards the end of his earthly ministry, and he prayed that his people would be one. 
just as he and the Father are one. Uh, Jesus went to the cross on our behalf to make us his children, to make us one. How can we fall out with each other when we are the ones for whom Christ died, for whom he prayed that we would be one? How can we fall out? Well, how do we grow in love for one another? It's not easy, is it? Uh, this is, I came across this quote this week, which I thought was quite helpful. It's by a chap called David Watson. Some of you might remember David Watson. He was an um, evangelist and preacher a good number of years ago now. He did a lot of um, uh, speaking and preaching to a very mixed gathering of Christians. He had a lot of experience. He was a vicar in York, but he travelled widely and he had a lot of experience of Christians working together, particularly Christians who perhaps wouldn't always have things in common that we might think. And he used this illustration. He said it's a little bit like when we travel uh, on an aeroplane. You'll know if you've travelled on an aeroplane, as the, as the plane rises further and further into the air, that the walls and the, kind of the, the, the fences and the hedges that, that, that meant quite a lot when you're on the ground suddenly are a bit meaningless because you're kind of above them. Uh, and you're in the, uh, the clouds uh, with, uh, with the people on the aeroplane. And he said that it's a bit like that with the gospel. When we're united in the gospel, when we're trusting in Jesus Christ, uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is able to work inside us and actually to lift us above our differences, uh, to become uh, more unified, uh, to, to become the people of God. He wasn't saying that we ignore important differences, that there are important differences. And the unity that we share is based only on the gospel. It's based on the fact that we've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. It's facts, not feelings. But if we have trust in the gospel this evening, then whether we like it or not, the facts have changed. Uh, We are family this evening. We're part of his family, the church. Uh, Whether we like it or not, we've got some mad uncles, some mad aunts, some people we would rather who weren't here, perhaps. But that's how we are. We're family and just as family, we're called to get along with each other. Uh, anyone who's been in a church for any length of time will, will know that this is a lot easier said than done. It is very easy to fall out over things that ultimately don't matter. Whether we have two morning services, for example, uh, whether we have an organ uh, playing, whether we have the guitar playing, uh, whether the clergy wear robes or not, there are a whole load of things that we could fall out over. And I think this evening, this is something I want to stress, we're particularly in a time in our life as a church where this is a real risk for us. It often happens to churches when they're in a vacancy. They find themselves falling out over things that actually normally really wouldn't be an issue. Uh, For some reason, uh, probably because the enemies are at work, it's easy to fall out. But I think the Lord is telling us through this passage, just as he was saying to the Roman church, that we're to accept each other because we're family. We're the family that Christ has bought by his own blood on the cross. And that's my prayer for us this evening, that we would be accepting one another, treating one another as family members, those whom Christ has bought. Thirdly and finally, I think Paul tells us here that we're to accept our weaker brothers and sisters because we all face final judgment. We all face a final judgment. And I think this is the most sobering reason out of uh, all of them. Uh, Paul is very clear that all of us will one day be judged by Christ. He says, doesn't he, verse, end of verse 10, uh, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. 
So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Uh, The Bible is very clear. Uh, One day Christ will return in glory and every single one of us will stand before him and hear his proclamation of our eternal destiny. Uh, And in the light of that, actually all our kind of petty bickering and squabbling really will seem pretty irrelevant and insignificant, I think. Uh, Paul quotes here from uh, a verse in Isaiah, and I I think he's doing it to to support his point, but to make it clear that this isn't something that he's just made up. The whole Bible testifies to this truth of eternal judgment. Uh, Paul says, uh, verse 11, uh, it's written, God says, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. Uh, The chapter that Paul's taken that from, uh, the prophet Isaiah is, is repeatedly getting across to the people of God that there is no other God but Yahweh, our God, the God of Israel. And because he's the God of Israel, he's the only God, he is the only person who is fit to judge the world. And just as it was true for the Israelites in Isaiah's time, just as it was true in uh, the Romans' time, it's true for us as well. I think we can start to see then how this might apply to this situation that we have in Romans 14. Uh, At the heart of the problem in Rome is that there are Christians who are passing judgment on one another. There are believers who are sitting over other believers whose consciences are weak and they're passing judgment on their beliefs. But Paul is very clear, isn't he? This, this can't happen. Why? Because none of us have the right to sit in judgment over another. We're not God. We can't tell what is in another person's heart. And actually the judgments that we make are not perfect and just in the way that God's will be. Uh, we're sinful, uh, we make warped judgments because we view things differently and our hearts are, 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 are not true. To sit in judgment over weaker brothers and sisters is to, to take a position that isn't ours to take. It's to forget that actually one day we too will be judged. Uh, this passage is reminding us that actually our place is in the dock, <laughs> not in the judge's seat. However much we might want to try and get out of it, however much we might like the idea of sitting in judgment over another's, Paul says, that's that's not your place, and you can't take it. You are in the dock, along with everybody else. God is the judge. Uh, We should stop passing judgment on one another, he tells us, verse 13. Uh, A writer I um, read has suggested that there's probably no theme in the Bible that is as prominent and yet as neglected as the theme of judgment. I can think of a few that I might add alongside that, but I think he's probably right. Uh, we don't like to think of the idea of a final judgment, do we? It sort of conjures up pictures of hellfire and brimstone preachers of years gone past. And yet we can't get away from it. The Bible is very clear. We will all be judged. And if we will be judged, then that should affect how we live now. And especially in how we should be treating our fellow uh, Christians. Uh, we shouldn't be passing judgment on them. We should leave it to God. That's his job. Uh, he has perfect judgment. Only he will be able, in the, in the final reckoning, uh, to make the right call. And yet there is an encouragement for us as well, isn't there? We are facing judgment. And yet the, if we're friends of Jesus, then we don't have to fear that judgment. 
I don't know if you know the skyline of London at all, but if you look out over London, there are two buildings in particular that will stand out for you. Uh, One is the Home of Justice, the Old Bailey. If you've been to the Old Bailey, you'll know there's a big golden statue on it. It's the statue of the goddess Justitia. And in one hand, she's got the Sword of Wrath that must fall. She's blindfolded to show the, the, kind of the fairness of justice, the Sword of Wrath falling on those who've been punished. On the other hand, there's the Scales of Justice. And it's that whole idea of being weighed up in the balance. Scary stuff. And yet, if you look over to London, further across the skyline, there's another building that stands out. And it's St Paul's Cathedral. And on the top of St. Paul's Cathedral is a golden cross, a huge golden cross. And that is the truth, isn't it, of the Bible's teaching on judgment there uh, in the skyline of London. Yes, there is judgment, there is justice. But the good news is that on the cross, Jesus took the sword of wrath that had to fall. It should have fallen on you and me. It didn't. It fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're trusting in Jesus this evening, we don't need to fear judgment. Yes, it should make a difference to how we act. We will be called to account for how we have treated other Christians, how we've responded to God. But we need never fear if we're trusting in Jesus. He will only say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, and welcome us in. How should we treat one another when we hold different opinions on these secondary issues? How should we treat one another? Paul tells us, accept one another. Accept one another because we have a living Lord. We don't belong to ourselves, we belong to him. Accept one another because we're family. We're to love each other because that's what Christ has, Christ has loved us. And we're to accept one another because God is the judge. We're accountable to him and not to each other. May that be true of us in Norwich and uh, just as it was true for the church in Rome. Let's pray, shall we? Well, Jesus, we read these um, verses, and they do, at first uh, read, seem uh, somewhat uh, distant from our situation here in Norwich. We're not falling out over special uh, food laws or special holy days, and yet we do know that we're not the unified people all the time that you would have us be. We do fall out, and we're sorry. Uh, we ask for your forgiveness. But we do pray that the truth of this passage would uh, be worked out in our lives here at Holy Trinity by your Spirit. We pray that you would bind us together. Uh, Thank you that we belong to you. Uh, We're not our own. But when we're uh, your slaves, that means perfect freedom. Uh, Thank you that we are family. We've been bought by your precious blood. Uh, Please help us to treat each other as brothers and sisters. And we thank you for that sobering truth, that sobering reminder that you are our judge. And we pray that we would live our lives in the light of your return and the light of your judgment. Thank you that if we're Christians this evening, we have nothing to fear. Uh, All we will know is your acceptance and your grace. Thank you. Amen.